The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate how we're changing the nature of work and how that work is changing us. The myth of Silicon Valley is that you might just land early at a startup and strike it rich when that company goes public. Shares of Google, the company that makes the world's most popular internet search engine, went on sale to great fanfare today. The offering was the biggest for an internet technology company in four years and made its founders billionaires. And ABC's been- But let's face it, this almost never happens. Instead, people work their tails off for tiny salaries, hoping their stock options turn into the kind of money that helps with the down payment on a house. And most startups fail. Even when they succeed, most people don't arrive early enough to see a huge payout. But that myth I was talking about, it exists because for a tiny group of people, luck wins. This spring, as many of tech's most promising startups like Uber and Lyft and Pinterest and Slack are finally going public, people will start to get payouts. But very few people will end up as lucky as Charlie Ayers. Charlie was Google's first chef and employee number 53 at the company. Shortly after he left in 2006, his stock options were worth $40 million. Charlie will tell you that he was lucky, but he was also smart. Smart enough to best his competition and get the job in the first place. Smart enough to purchase his options. Smart enough to use his reputation as the Google chef to launch businesses of his own. But his story isn't just about tech and food. It's also about how Silicon Valley changed over the two decades since he took the job. Tech made Charlie a multimillionaire overnight, and it also put him out of business. Here's Charlie. So tell me how you got your job at Google. Well, I initially I tried out for it, but prior to trying out, I, I was cooking privately for a family here in the Silicon Valley and went everywhere they went, and it wasn't a great life. It sounds glamorous, but it's not. The girl I was dating at the time worked with a gentleman whose wife worked in PR at Google. She's like, my office mate says that they need a chef at this company called Google. I'm like, Google, what's that? She's like, it's a search engine. This was like 1998. I'm like, what's a search engine? She's like, you know, like Lycos or Yahoo. So I sent a resume, no responses. Then I, from my inside connection, said, send it to this person and send them like a care package of what you do. So I did that on a weekly basis for a while and no response, no response. I was sending it to the wrong person and they were getting all kinds of scones and preserves and all things I'm making. And they were like, well, this is awesome. So I found the right person to contact and, and engage with. And they're like, we're just ending our round of tryouts. Would you like to come in? Certainly. There was only like 18 people in the company at that time, maybe, maybe 20, 24, but it was jam packed and it, and it looked like they were doing everything and anything else other than work. You know, there was like rector sets and, and all kinds of children's toys everywhere. And my initial meeting with Larry Page was, and I didn't, I never met him before, so I didn't know when this guy came bouncing out of the elevator with this ball, this like a ball that you'd ride on, like a child, bouncing out right past me. I'm like, huh. later I find out that was Larry Page. So I had a very light interview, um, met Sergey, and, you know, he told me that, you know, we, we need a chef to grow with this company. And I didn't realize they had all those growth plans. And, and I was like, most of the restaurants here in the street of downtown Palo Alto, I've opened over the years. So you, you don't need to go anywhere. Oh, no, we're going to be somewhere far away where 
The employees can't just leave to go to lunch. So we need a chef that will grow with our culture. Okay. Left that interview. I was like, I'm not getting that job. These guys are crazy. <laughs> they called me in for the cook tryout. What was the cook tryout? Like, wh- where did it happen? So they had called me weeks later because they're very about, slow about moving. And they're like, we have new headquarters. We're in Mountain View and we have a kitchen. And you can come here and cook. And we're going to need you to cook for around 50 people. Okay, fine. No problem. So I went out to dinner with that gal and her husband and the girlfriend at the time and juiced her for all the information of how do you guys eat, what do you eat, and all that. And we eat California cuisine, we eat sushi, we love Indian food, we eat a lot of vegetarian, we go to Whole Foods a lot, we get all this delivered. So I was like, great. I had information that none of these other chefs did. So I built a menu built on the information that they'd given me. So I made a very eclectic menu that had all of these things that they eat. Do you remember anything that was on the menu? Oh, yeah. Okay, come on. Uh, We had a... uh, Sri Lankan chicken curry with roasted pumpkin and brown rice. I had a, a five spice tofu and cashew lettuce cup. Yum. And a chocolate almond cake. Everyone that came through and ate, you know, like each person was like, this is exactly the food we eat. We love this type of food. How did you know? So you serve that meal. And then how long after that did you get the call? And did you know at that point, wow, this is a job I want? I still didn't really know what it was. It took Google almost eight weeks to get back to me. So I had to go back and work for this family. And it was it was like, come on, where's where's the phone call? Where's the phone call? Every night going home, checking the answer machine, has there been a phone call? And finally they got a hold of me and they're like, they called on a Thursday and they're like, we want you to start this Monday. What was it like to work there while you worked there? I felt like Homer Simpson, working with all these hugely intelligent people. And in the, in the beginning, there was a bunch of cubicles anywhere. It was doors and, and sawhorses, everyone in one room. And I'm working next to financial analysts and guys that, you know, have invented the internet. And, and, and I'm like, can I go work in a corner where you're not around? I'm not. And they're like, we have an office for you downstairs. I'm like, oh, let's go there. So I completely isolated myself from the company and just started digging into creating something that they hadn't had before. And I had to, you know, talk with Larry and Sergey and find out what they really want. And they're like, we want you to be happy. And if you're happy, we'll be happy. Do whatever you want. So you were there five years, right? So in your mind, were they five very different years? Was it like five chapters? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So give us a, give us a couple of fun stories from that time. In the very beginning, they were so geeky. I mean, like the first ski trip I went with them, there was about, you know, 50-something of us that went up in a couple of vans. And I made the mistake of going to Larry and Sergey's party one night. And they're like, oh, we're having a party at our suite later tonight. You should, you should come down. And I went up from the bar from, with a couple engineers. And they're like, be careful. These guys rage. And I opened the door. And they were sitting down playing like Trivia Pursuit, drinking soda and eating popcorn. And I'd already had a couple of cocktails. I'm like, you can't back out now. You have to sit down and hang out with them. To be fair, I would not want to play Trivial Pursuit with either of them. Oh, like they had their brain trust there in that room, all their their inner sanctum of of, uh, trusted people there. And uh, it it was – I was like, you got to hang for at least 45 minutes with these people and then leave. And (laughs) and I left and I heard like a roar when the door closed. And later I found out they're like, oh, my God, we're not cool enough to hang out with him. (laughs) He had to leave us. Well, so – Tell me about your decision. Like, when when did you decide that it was time for you to move on? You know, the company had just gone public, and we were doing about 10,000 meals a day. I want, you know, I was like, you know, I, I have an opportunity to do something else now, and I've always wanted to do my own thing. Why not 
take this opportunity. And like I, I had somewhat of a reputation and name growing now. I was like, I might as well work with that to do my own thing. Wasn't exactly sure on how I was going to get to that. Were you pretty burnt out by then? I mean, you must have been yeah. working hard for a long uh, time. My health had diminished hugely. Um, I'd gained tons of weight and like I was driving around on a golf cart everywhere. And it was just, if you look at pictures from me way back then until now, and you're like, wow. So after I recovered, like three weeks later, I, I told my now ex-wife, but at the time, I was like, I want to go back. And she's like, it's done. It's over with. That train is, has, has left the station. You, you got to figure out your own thing now. I want to know how you thought about the options part of the role at that point. Like you're technically, I mean, you're leaving. And I'm imagining that when you became a chef earlier in your career, you didn't think, oh, I'm probably going to become a millionaire. That was, you know. Um, I just wanted to be happy. One of the financial analysts that I sat next to in the early days, his, his name was John Motley. And he's like, have you bought your, your options? Have you gotten into that yet? I'm like, no. He's like, listen, this company is going to be big. They're going to blow up like no other. There's never been anyone like this. I highly advise you scrape up that money and get it together. And, and at the time, there was like two cents a share. So I asked my dad, I'm like, Pop, I need to borrow 14 grand. He's like, why? I'm like, these people I'm working for, they need it for it. And he's like, it's a scam. Don't you dare. I mean, but it sounds like it on the face. Yeah. And I, I'm like, Dad, you don't realize that these people I'm working with are like some of the most brilliant minds there are. He's like, all right, I love you. I'm going to help you. And if it works out, better for everyone. If it doesn't, you've learned a lesson and you owe me. Coming up after the break, Charlie tells us what happened when he left Google. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Okay, I'm back with more from Charlie Ayers. But first, let me remind you why we are talking to Charlie. This spring, a spate of private tech companies are finally going public. Most of the people who work at these companies won't walk away with the chunk of change that Charlie did. But IPOs will still change their prospects. Our reporter, Caroline Fairchild, has been researching this. Hi, Caroline. Hey, Jesse. So after years of speculation, several tech companies like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, and Slack, they're going public. Taken together, these companies are worth billions of dollars. That's billions with a B. And the New York Times recently came out with a report that the potential of this much money hitting the public market and employee stock options vesting as a result could create thousands of new millionaires out of the employees at these companies. So what does LinkedIn tell us about this? Yeah, if you think about it, there are already a lot of millionaires in the Bay Area, and now there's going to be even more. And we know from LinkedIn data that a lot of workers, they want to get in on this. They're trying to get into these companies right now, and that's probably because of the potential upside in earnings. But since the average time people stick around is only about two years, very few people will be in the position to strike it rich like Charlie. Still, there are significant numbers of people who've been around since the beginning or had options since the beginning 
What do we know about them? Well, we know that these employees are probably still in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is one of the top locations for all of these tech companies, and they're going to have a huge impact on the local economy. There is already a very high cost of living in San Francisco. The median priced home is $1.6 million. And the more capital flooding the market will only make this situation worse. Yes. And it's not just houses. I mean, think of all of the things that are about to be more expensive. In houses, parties. We read in the New York Times, ice luges are going to be more expensive. It's going to hit every part of the local economy. So what are people saying about this on LinkedIn? So naturally, we're seeing tons of debate on this topic on LinkedIn with hundreds of members weighing in. And many do think that the impact of this IPO process that we're going to see in the near future is going to be massive on the Bay Area. But some are questioning that. The founder of a startup out of Irvine, California, said that he was doubtful that thousands of new millionaires will be minted off of this next round of IPOs because relatively few have been at these companies long enough to have those kind of stock options. Thanks, Caroline. Now back to Charlie. He left Google in 2006, two years after it went public. So when you got to the point where you left, and you left with these options, you left Google post-IPO, so by then Google was a big deal and people knew it was a big deal. What was your life like? Did your friends treat you differently? Was it like something, was it like you'd been struck by lightning? Yes, it was. It was a whirlwind. Um, Went public, got married, published a cookbook, opened a restaurant, all within like four years. Wow. And My friends treated me the same because they knew I was the same person. Um, the people that really didn't know me treated me differently. I didn't have like a line of cousins knocking on the door like, hey, I need help. Or, you know, I only had one person that asked to borrow money and it was a thousand bucks and it was for some school and he paid me back. So I was fortunate enough that I didn't have what you hear about, you know, and we bought a home in a very unassuming neighborhood and did nothing to the exterior, but blew it up on the inside. So there was no driving by like, oh, that's a house to rob. It just looked like a regular Brady Bunch house in a regular Brady Bunch neighborhood. And, and we intentionally did that because I didn't want my ex-wife's son becoming this little monster. I wanted him to be real and be able to... And by little monster, I, I assume you mean you didn't want wealth to shape who mm-hmm. he became. Mm-hmm. I watched a lot of people just turn into people that they weren't ever before at Google. Yeah, that's right, because you went through this along with everybody else who went through this. I watched people divorce their wives and husbands and people that loved them, supported each other, and like all kinds of changing their looks and everything. And and I was like, wow, none of you people were happy. That's so weird. And you think money is going to change all that for you. And it did. And I've watched a lot of people also tumble and fall since then. And I mean, I've watched the up and down, you know, for 15 years, you can see that happen. I've watched, you know, there were some people where it hasn't phased them at all, and they've grown their wealth even more. And uh, other people that were just happy to get away from it and not even let people know what they had so they could lead a regular life. Right. I mean, for a long time, I couldn't, you know, it was like if I went in the supermarket, Whole Foods and Palo Alto, people look at my basket, what do I have? Really? Oh, just where I was constantly changing my looks because I was always getting solicited on the streets or wherever I went. Did you feel recognizable? Because you were a person that everybody, at least everybody who worked in Google would have known you as the chef. After that, just the PR group I was using and all the notoriety I was getting after that. And I started doing stuff on the Food Network and PR company I was working with was doing their job. Right. And they they were getting me out there. Would you have been able to do that without the Google bump? I mean, I knew what I was doing, but, you know, there's thousands of great chefs out there better than myself Right. that, you know, I got lucky. 
Honestly, I, I was in the right place at the right time. I got lucky. It's true that you got lucky. It is also true that you're an incredibly talented chef. It's Thank true you. that there aren't a ton of jobs in Silicon Valley startups for chefs. There's maybe one, maybe half dozen most when they're large. So how do you think back about how Google happened to you? You know, it was just they were ready to do something that no one else had done, and I was ready to try it out. I've always been a risk taker, an uncalculated risk taker, as my father would say. Um, so rolling the dice and close my eyes and hope it works out for the best. And yeah. they didn't know what they were doing. They were advised not to by human resources and legal. Like, our own chef, are you crazy, the liabilities of that? But Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison advised Larry and Sergey both, you want to set yourself apart, have your own culinary programs, because Apple and Oracle both had their own thing. And they saw the value of that. Right. Are there any other big changes you make to your lifestyle when you leave Google? Took vacations that I never had before, you know. Spent time in Japan. I spent almost a month there. Yeah. And just, you know, took care of myself and enjoyed myself, really. I had an opportunity to eat a lot of different foods that I hadn't had before and meet chefs I hadn't met before because I, I started getting invited to these different food festivals and working alongside, like, people that I admired. And I'm like, can I have your autograph? I've always wanted to, you know... Right. And they were equally, it was like, this is the Google chef. I want to meet this guy that's made of gold. And I'm like, dude, it's not like, and then they'd see how hard I would work. And they're like, he's, he's a regular, humble guy that's just like, you know, and they appreciated that. Right. You know, because at the end of the day, you know, everyone that's in this industry, my industry, even Thomas Keller, you know, he puts on his whites and he'll get behind the dish machine and help if he needs to. And that's the thing about this industry. It's service, and you can't be above that, and it can't be an ego-driven thing where, like, you're going to eat this food because I'm so-and-so. Coming up after the break, Charlie tells us about what happened to the restaurant he started. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life— We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back to my conversation with Charlie Ayers. So what happened to your career, good and bad? So right after I left, while I was doing the cookbook thing, Facebook hired me to do their food program. So I advised them, gave Mark Zuckerberg the secret sauce recipe, and this is what you want to do if you want to have the same thing. And then I got work with LinkedIn when they were very small, still in Palo Alto, and there was like 200 people set up their micro kitchens. And I worked with Palantir and Dropbox and Ning and Zazzle and all that. Like, so I had my hands in all these companies that were, some of them were people that had money in Google. And they're like, you did such a great job with these guys. We want you to help with these little companies that we have. So I was getting, you know, I was, so I built a little bitty company and I was advising tech companies on, on how to, you know, be like Google. Did the wealth that you generated during your time at Google 
give you a cushion that allowed you to take different and larger risks later on? Yes, it did. And things that I believed in, projects I believed in, and charities that I wanted to work with and support. The way I treated my employees, one of the things I realized is that your employees are your, your most valuable asset. And I, I really tried to treat the employees that worked for me at the restaurant better than normal restaurants did. So when did you start your restaurant? We opened up on Inauguration Day, January 21st, 2009. Well, tell us what it was called. Calafia. And Calafia is named after the goddess of California. And it was my um, homage to the Latin Asian culture here in California that basically built what we have today. Had we not had the Chinese come here and built the railroads, we wouldn't have anything that we have here. And, you know, we basically stole the land from Mexico. Having to be two of my favorite types of food, Latin and Asian foods. I already cooked healthy food, so I made a, you know, Latin Asian California cuisine based menu. Half of it was vegetarian. And my whole thing was, you know, using the local produce and, and all of our ingredients came from California except for, you know, chocolate and a couple of things that you have to import. That sounds like a winning recipe for the California that I've come up in. What happened to the restaurant? How'd it go? We closed last year in August, 14 months shy of our 10-year anniversary. Having as much notoriety as I had over the years, a lot of business came down from San Francisco. They're like, we want a piece of this action. This guy's getting, you know, like one year I was in the food section 13 times. They only have it once a month. You know, so that's how much attention we were getting. That's how much we were blowing it up. All the competition that moved in around the area, corporate chains, multiple locations that equated to them being able to buy commodities at a lower price than I could to the point where they're like, we'll put you out of business just by undercutting and underselling you for the same ingredients, but we can get it cheaper and we'll pass it on to our customers. And as many as black Amex cards drop on the tables in Palo Alto and Lamborghinis and Porsches you see pulling up, their people are still mindful of how they spend their money, especially if they don't cook and they're going out to eat multiple times a day. So it just got to the point where you know, the lawyer said to me, he's like, if you don't close it down, I will. Because you, you can't go on like this anymore. It'll, it'll be so bad for you. Wow. And I, I had to do that. It was one of the hardest things to do. I, uh, I cried harder than when my mom died. Wow. But it was bittersweet. Yeah. You know, when I was asking around to try to find you because I wanted to talk to you, I ended up talking to just a couple of people I know in the Valley who were like, oh, yeah, Charlie. I haven't seen him in a while because I'd always go hang out with him at his restaurant. Yeah, it um, it got really slow last year, and it was just like I couldn't take it anymore. I was like, business is not coming in. I was in prime real estate in downtown in Palo Alto in town and country. So I was a restaurant that catered. I wasn't a catering company. So my costs were always greater. Everything, And I had to pass it on to customers if I was going to you know, stay in business. And people were like, I love your food, but, you know, I can get it for $5 cheaper from these guys to come in and feed my hundred and something employees. Was it a lot of the digital startups? Mm-hmm. That- yep. A lot, of, a lot of tech companies are just like, you know, the, we get it for this. And I'm like, I can't do that. In some ways, that's interesting because it, it's as though tech made you and then tech broke you. Yep. Professionally. I had gone to one of the town hall meetings in Palo Alto. Because a lot of the local merchants were trying to get the same ordinance passed that Mountain View did about tech companies feeding their employees. And I went up and complained about it. And some wise-ass restaurateur was like, ah, isn't that funny? The guy that started the problem is getting burned by it now. 
And I was like, fuck you, dude. You know, <laughs> I was just like, don't, don't, don't be that way. I'm like, I have a business just like you do. Well, you're still a young man. We're sitting here. You know, I'm catching up with you at this point in your career. It's the intermediate phase. What's next for you? I've been helping a vegan shrimp company. They make shrimp from algae, seaweed, and kelp, and other plant life materials. And it's amazing. So it's something I've been doing for a while, for about last year, working with them. I started working with them while I still had Calafia open. I used that as a place where they could bring their product and investors. And it was something new that no one was doing before because I'd done a little work with Impossible Foods. I got into that. I was like, this is cool. This is, this is the future. We can't continue to rely on cattle and poultry and pork and all these things that live in the ocean so we can continue to sustain ourselves because and, and, we're not going to have anything left. We need to start looking at plant life now mm. to, to recreate that whole you know, sustainability of, 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 of food chain or else we're going to break it. You know, like I had people bring me Petri dish chicken and fish from Stanford. And I was open to try and they're like, would you serve that at your restaurant? I said, eventually if I had to, I would be totally open to it. You know, if we as, as human beings are going to survive and live on this planet, we need to figure it out because we're breaking it. And it's, uh, in every way imaginable. Know. Well, I for one am glad that that is the challenge that you are working on now. Yeah, so I've always I've always been into the environment, and uh, you know, if, if we treat the planet the right way, it's going to take care of us. And you treat your body the right way, and you eat properly, that's your medicine. You know. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. Next week on the show, two-time Olympic gold medalist Abby Wambach made a name for herself playing soccer. She captained the Women's World Cup team that won in 2015 before she retired. My biggest fear was that soccer is what made me special, right? And it gave me a sense of identity, gave me a confidence, gave me a swagger. And then when you separate yourself from that, I was really worried that I would then become non-existent. In fact, it was just the opposite. Today, Abby's legacy is more likely to be defined by inspiring women to take care of each other, like the women on her soccer team. You'd think that would be a simple message. It's not. Do you have a female mentor who helped you? Call us at 415-275-1327 and tell us about her. That's 415-275-1327. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sim and Brad Davis with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. The show is mixed by Joe DiGiorgi. Florencia Riondo is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. A shout out to Melissa Rennie, Gaia Filicori, Derek Chung, and Paige Williams for spreading the good cheer. Thanks, folks. Music was by Poddington Bear in Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. We had tie-dye parties and stuff, and they put me in charge of all the music there. So we had live music coming through Google all the time, and I was mostly bringing all the bands that I knew. Right. And finally, they're like, do you know any non-jam band music that <laughs> could possibly play here? And I'm like, sure, that's, that's not a problem. So th- they embraced it, and they were, you know, they, they were into uh, the whole disruption thing like the Grateful Dead were. So you yeah. are also the DJ for Google. Yep. Yeah, well, there you go.